Hello and welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast, hosted by myself, Carlos Colazzo, and joined as always by Ben Badler. Uh, we're talking to you Thursday, April 13th, uh, and it's a night podcast for us, Ben. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Carlos. How's everything? It's good, man. It's good. Um, the Rays just won their 13th game in a row. It looks like they're on pace to go 162-0 this season. Um, and then next week I'm off for a little bit. So um, that's a maybe a bit rare in the spring for me. But uh, no, things are going well. And it's fun to see all these minor league guys rolling now. We're starting to get some uh, fun results at least coming in. I don't know if there's too much we can take away from small sample size noise. But um, no, things are good. How about you? No, I think we can take away, basically, if, if I really like a player and he's doing well so far, I think that actually is not a small sample size. Yes. Even if it's 20 plate appearances, that means I was right. Although, if, if he's struggling, then obviously that could just be a small sample size. That's, yeah, so, so Matthew, Libertor, Matthew Libertor is shoving. I think I was the highest on him on my personal rankings preseason, so I'm just right on him. Um, Jet Williams so far isn't hitting that well, even though he had one monstrous home run. So small sample size noise with Jet. That seems you're, like a fluke, yeah. Yeah, you're good to bank Libertor's performance. Um, one thing I did want to ask you about before we get into some players and some maybe Ray's talk in the podcast today is MLB tweeted out today from their account um, the phrase that I maybe hate more than any other phrase in baseball, and that's have a catch. I don't know if we've talked about this in the podcast before because I know we've talked about it in the BA offices back back when we were Durham and we actually talked to people face to face. But I despise the phrase "have a catch" and I hope that you do too. But I also know you're from the Northeast, and it seems like people from the Northeast are people who use this phrase for whatever reason. But it, it's called play catch, Ben. Well, so, first of all, I don't I don't know how you can say that is your most hated phrase in all of baseball it, it's it's one of them every time i see it i am just enraged it just gets although, under your skin although a new one now is sweeper and we can get into that too but it does it definitely gets under my skin it just it's just so awkward to me I, mike lanana who used to write for us at baseball america he he always said have a catch and it just like gave me the heebie-jeebies every time i heard it i hate it i don't think it's a regional thing though i i, I don't know i think I've it always definitely said, is i've always said play catch but I because you're smart. You're a smart. I take man. I take no offense to saying have a catch. I take the offense. Either. I'll take the offense for you. I hate it. It's it's not like saying the MLB. That one's way worse to me. Uh, yeah, I mean that one's bad too. But it doesn't it doesn't personally offend me like have a catch seems to offend me. But it just I don't know. If if you guys are listening, let us know. Do you? I mean, I, I probably like scared away all the have a catch people here. Although that's actually not true because the last time we talked about OPS versus ops, I got some texts from people who who said I was pretty dumb for saying ops out loud on a podcast. So that's maybe encouraging get, for me to hear. Yeah. Well, whatever. Maybe maybe we'll have the same for have a catch. But let us know. Are you have a catch? Are you a play catch person? Um, it, it's called playing catch. The other one that is becoming super common, and maybe this is just this year's trendy topic is it's actually not even a trend though because of how it's getting classified is labeling sweepers as their own individual pitch type i don't know how i feel about that i don't think i like it do you have any strong takes on this for me i think it's just like labeling a 12-6 curveball a 12-6 
rather than just labeling it a curveball. And then if you want to know like the details of the pitch shape, you can look into the movement profile. I, I just feel like it's unnecessary to label sweepers as their own unique pitch. And it, it, it made me mad the other day when I was trying to look up like the best sliders in the game and there's slider and then there's sweeper. And I just want all sliders. I, th- I think the, the boundaries of pitch classification is already blurry enough. We're just adding a new boundary here by introducing a subset of a slider as a pitch type. I, I don't know. Am I, am I too OCD on this? You're just coming out airing all your, your pet peeve grievances. Yes. That's what today. This, this podcast I, is entirely, um, what irks me in baseball. That's what it the, is. A sweeper. I mean, it's a type of slider. Yes. So I, I wouldn't say it's its own pitch, but if but, you're saying, but that's how what does... we're saying now, that's what we're saying these days. That's, that's what I don't like about it. Well, not yeah. we, not us, but well, we don't it's, we don't have pitch pitch data on the site like that, but the yeah, it's just it's the type of action yeah on the pitch the way you would say yeah like you would say oh he throws a spike curveball but it, you know it's not a, its own unique pitch separate from a curveball. Well, on the other hand, knuckle curves some some places separate knuckle curves from curveballs too. So what about different types of fastballs? Though, where you have so four-seam fastball, two-seam fastball. Would you say a, a cut fastball? I mean, that's no, kind of its own So here, here, are the, here are the pitch types that I'll accept. Let's go through them. Okay, so four-seam fastball, two-seam fastball or sinker. I view them as the same pitch. Whatever you want to call it, it's fine with me. I think I'm, I'm fine differentiating that. Cutter. Okay, those would be my main fastball pitch types. After that... I would have slider, and that includes sweepers, that includes gyro sliders, that includes maybe slurves that are a little bit more towards the slider uh, designation. After that, I would have a curveball. Um, I don't think I would have any separate, I, I don't think I would want to have like a knuckle curve designation, just curveball is fine. I would have change up, and then I think I would have splitter. Uh, and I guess beyond that, the two random ones would be like knuckleball and a screwball, and I think that's fine. Are there any are there any pitch types that I miss that you think we need like distinct labels for? Because for me, I think that that about runs the gamut and covers it. So you're you're talking about analysis when you're looking at a breakdown of what percentage of pitches a pitcher yeah. throws, so, or or outcomes or analysis of a this. Exactly. Pitch, it's it's if you basically break... just the labeling of it that makes me a little upset. Like if you're writing about a pitcher introducing a sweeper slider, I I don't care at all if you refer to it as a sweeper within within the post or if that's how you just talk about it. But just for all of the data and for the pitch labeling, like with baseball savant and fan graphs or game day, whatever wherever it's being labeled, like it's showing up as a sweeper in the game feed. It just kind of drives me crazy. But are they separating out? Is it, are they saying he's throwing a sweeper and a slider? So it will either be classified as a sweeper, and if it doesn't meet the sweeper classifications, which those seem to differ based on the site, um, it's all there's also just a slider. So one pitch will either be labeled a sweeper or a slider if it meets the right movement profile characteristics. That's what I don't like. Yeah, yeah, I mean, as long as we're consistent about, like, I, I wouldn't want you to separate out, oh, uh, like, one guy throws a slider, another guy throws a sweeper. No, like, a, a sweeper is just the action on the slider. But, like, obviously, within different types of pitches, there are different 
yes. variants of that pitch, right? For you can sure. have uh, it's it's just a different grips or way you're throwing the mm-hmm. ball. You could throw a a circle changeup. You can throw a you know mm-hmm. other types of changeups, but we would still call it a changeup. Yeah. So I think we agree a, here. A circler. Yeah, exactly. I think we agree here, and I think it is fun talking about pitches and breaking down pitches because there is such a a gray area often between pitch types, like the slurvy breaking balls that that maybe have the shape of a slider uh, or the shape of a curve ball, but but maybe more typical slider power. Or once you get into the slider versus cutter designation, um, Tosh Bradley, who who we'll get into later today, he seems to have a breaking ball that. It wouldn't surprise me if you called it a slider at times or a cutter at times. It certainly seems like it's on the boundary there. Um, but I just feel like the more pitch labels we get, the more it kind of muddies the the data for me, at least when I want to look at kind of a, a top-down view of like, okay, what's the league, what's the league rate for uh, sliders this year? Now, maybe maybe I'm just being too picky here, and it's as simple as adding the slider to whatever the sweepers are. And then I can go from there. But, you know, Ben, I'm not good at math. I don't want to do extra work on that. So let's just keep things simple here. Sure. All the petty grievances are, are coming yeah. out at the pitch classification algos now. Yes, 100%. Any any grievances you need to air today? No. I guess the phrase that I always hear that makes me laugh is off the charts makeup. <laughs> Which is like, well, if if it's off the chart, we can just make a bigger chart, one. And mm-hmm. second, I mean, makeup is this intangible thing anyway that we can't really measure. So it's always just a strange phrase to me to hear. I hope and, there's, and there's so many phrase. guys who who you'll hear, about, oh, this guy's makeup is off the charts. And it's like, well, yeah. that's what they say about... <laughs> Uh, a whole bunch of guys who probably could comfortably fit on a chart if we we really needed to map it out. It's probably like the usage of the word literally in baseball. It's just become so commonplace and and cliche that the the phrase itself has lost its original meaning. Um, People just kind of use it to signify good makeup. Well, people use the word real that way in baseball. They'll they'll talk about, oh, he's got a real slider too. Uh, as opposed to a sweeper, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, he's <laughs> <I'm> gonna. <laughs> but he, oh no, he's got he's got a he's got a real he's got a real curveball. Like yeah. it's it's a legitimately good pitch. Like or he's got a real feel for a changeup as opposed to just feel for a changeup. Do you think that that is because we only have so many words to describe things, and when you're talking about so many different players, you just feel the need to use different words, and if you're using the same ones over and over again, you need to kind of spice things up. Like, I guess when you're writing reports, do you ever feel like you're using the same terminology over and over again, or no? Definitely, yeah. I mean, there's terms that are just part of the language you're using to mm-hmm. describe players, and there's so only there's only so many different terms you can use to describe uh you know whether it's a a player's body or swing or things that he does that um, you're looking for as an infielder Mm -hmm. and it sometimes even narrowing your vocabulary is helpful too is just as far as being consistent in the things that you're Mm -hmm. looking for and trying to 
evaluate and break down a player looking for a lot of the same checkpoints on players. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of times, and you're just right, you know, we probably write thousands of reports on Mm -hmm. players every single year. Um, And, you know, like I'm going to write 250-something uh, probably international scouting reports on players who are signing at you know 16, 17 years old. There's only mm-hmm. so many different ways you can describe uh, players who are kind of that young and, and far away. I wonder how often you write lean and projectable frame. Yeah, wiry, uh, lots of space to fill out. <laughs> it would be <laughs> lacking fun to, strength. Yeah. It would be fun to run some of this like language analysis software on our own individual reports and see what the most common either phrases or descriptive words are. I, I don't know if I have an immediate one that would come to mind for me. It would probably be some some sort of basic like pitch shape descriptor, I would imagine, just because we have so many pitchers on the BA five hundred, and like you said, there's there's only so many ways to describe pitch movement and, and how a pitch plays. Um, so I would think it would be either something like that or or some descriptor of body type, probably. Yeah, I would say for, and for the international players who are younger, a lot it would probably just be feel. Like he has mm. feel for a curveball. He mm. has feel for a changeup. Yeah. It's never like, like you're not seeing a 17-year-old pitcher, or pretty typically at least, who's has a true plus slider right Mm -hmm. now like it's they're they're still have a long way to go they might flash it every now and then yeah but more 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 likely you're you're looking for like i'm i'm curious who the best like present slider would be from an international player that you've covered because that pitch type it seems to be one where with a lot of amateur pitchers, especially when when you're throwing a slider at that age, it's it's more of a curveball a lot of the times, just because you're not strong enough to get that sort of power that you typically associate with the slider. I know a lot of amateur players that I've seen who are even a couple years older than the international guys that you're focusing on. Um, it's it's mostly that like upper seventies. Like it, it definitely looks like a pitch that's going to be a slider once they add a little bit more power in the future. But in, in terms of like a slider versus a curveball at the pro level, just the velocity separation between the fastball and the the quote unquote slider isn't quite there yet. Yeah, well, a lot of times when you're seeing players who are 16, 17, they'll throw a curveball, and it's really just this yeah in between type mm-hmm. three quarters ish slurve type breaking ball. But some of them have better feel for spin mm-hmm. than others. Sometimes it's like you know that soft loopy slurvy in between breaking ball that's not great but you know even if the pitch shape isn't refined yet the the good ones you can see guys who really have just that innate feel for for tight spin Mm -hmm. on the ball and that's something that's uh, especially if they're throwing it with some power too already for that age usually those are are really good signs yeah i like to see when a pitcher either has like good shape and good finish on the pitch. Even if the power is not there yet, you see that spin that kind of like drives the pitch down at the end as it's nearing the glove. And you you can just see the shape of it in the natural field to spin. And you know, once he adds a little more strength and he does add a little bit more power to the pitch, kind of the innate field of spin is already there. But when you're talking about breaking balls, kind of um, varying a little bit. I remember the, the first few times I was out at games trying to learn how to, break guys down when I started at Baseball America, both when I was an intern and, and first 
first year here kind of learning about it, I remember I would write down like pitch shape, just what I was seeing with arms. And, and I would write down a uh, pitch shape and then I would see the next pitch and I'd be like, Oh, I, I was wrong. The, the pitch shape is, is X instead of Y. Like I, I clearly must've seen that. Like I wasn't trusting my eyes at first. And it took me a little bit to realize that, you know, a lot of these pitchers just don't have that consistent shape with the breaking ball, even if they're trying to throw the same pitch. So that yeah. was definitely a quick learning, uh, learning curve for me. I'll watch, I'll watch them warm up and see if they're signaling for curveball or slider. And then a lot of times yep. I'll just talk to the player after and be like, Hey, is that a curveball and a slider? Or are you throwing one or the other? And it's, <laughs> it can, it can vary. Like I'll, and I'll ask international directors or something about the, some of the players they've signed. Uh, oh, is it like a curveball or slider? And a lot of times it's like, well, <laughs> he thinks it's a curveball, but really it's a slider or it's, you know, it, one of those in-between type deals right now. It's funny that you said that because I also had, I've, I've had that come up plenty of times where, where I'll talk to a player and they'll tell me the pitch. And I remember one time I was talking to a scout and he was like, oh, and he throws this curveball. And I was like, oh, actually he told me he's throwing a, a slider. And the scout was like, uh, I, I don't really care what he, he says he's throwing. Like this is, <laughs> this is how the pitch plays. So like, this is what I'm writing down. Yeah. But yeah, I guess it is important to know what, what the attempt is and if the results bear that out or if it's just a question of like, okay, this, this pitcher maybe doesn't truly realize what, what a slider versus a curveball is at this age. So Yeah, but I remember like, I remember seeing Noble Meyer when he was an underclassman going into his junior year. And I think he was up to, he's probably like scraping the low 90s at the time, but he always had really good feel for spinning the ball, for spinning that slider. And then all of a sudden the, I should say all of a sudden, but you know, by the time coming into his, his senior year that summer, the velocity took off. It really jumped up to upper nineties and he throws a lot of strikes and he's got a ridiculous, you know, 3000 plus RPM slider, but that, you know, that feel to spin the ball, was was always there yeah he's he's kind of a perfect example for this because I, I was recently talking to a scout about noble meyer this spring he's been electric by the way like i think he's he, he entered the year as we had him as the top high school pitcher on the board and it feels like he's only kind of cementing that status this spring he's been up to 99 he's had a ton of heat in to see him in the northwest but i was talking to this scout and they were like yeah what what really jumped out to me about noble was the fact that he wasn't always throwing mid 90s velocity when 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 he first saw him it's kind of the same you're talking about he was throwing upper 80s getting into the lower 90s it was just a really advanced pitcher at the time and then you layer on the strength and the additional velocity and the power to the slider and now you've got a prep pitcher who flashes two sevens and has good feel for it i think that's probably the ideal way to develop is is maybe don't don't get to that stuff super early, really create this strong foundation and baseline of, of pitching ability and, and learn how to move the ball around and how to throw strikes, how to establish the fastball, feel for a breaking ball, even if the power is not quite there. And then once the strength does come, uh, the stuff will pop. Um, that's what that's what Chase Dolander did. Um, it took him a little bit longer in terms of overall timeline compared to what Noble Meyer has been, but um, Dolander was also a guy who was upper 80s in high school and then has made a, a pretty massive jump since he's been to college so um cool to see noble still throwing well and cool to cool to, cool to know that you saw him as an underclassman before he made that big jump yeah i think we had him like in the 
40s or maybe 50s on our high school top 100 list coming into coming into that uh, junior season for him but mm-hmm. yeah i mean yeah that's the key is just to ultimately uh end up throwing 99 miles an hour with a absolute wipeout 3000 plus rpm slider yeah that's just the dream. just layer that on top of the pitchability it's is simple. always it's a simple simple game you know the have you I mean have you heard that scouting at, I mean he's a little different because it's a, a slider as opposed to a curveball but the kind of the scouting adage that it, you know if you have a, a young pitcher where the the velocity isn't quite there yet you know maybe he's throwing you know eighty eight ninety miles an hour but he can throw he has like a like tight spin and and power in particular on his breaking ball like it's you know again like 88 90 fastball but the curveball is already you know throwing with power say like upper 70s like a hard curveball that that is a sign that the velocity on a fastball is going to take a jump i haven't heard that a ton i might have heard it like in passing but it's definitely not something that it's been like hammered home to me i mostly hear about like arm speed um, and just physical projection. I think arm speed is probably the biggest one that gets cited. But yeah. I'm curious about that that breaking ball one. Is that is that something that you buy into or believe, or have you have you seen that borne out? I think there's something to it. I mean, I don't have a way to study it empirically. Yeah, and maybe Chat it, GPT will allow you to do that in the near future. Have you? I've asked Chat GPT some baseball stuff. It's uh, it's not. I coming. asked them about you. I think we were uh, at some point. We were trying to see if it was just a Google search, and I was like, who is J.J. Cooper? Who is Ben Badler? I, I asked them about all the heavy hitters at Baseball America. They gave you a pretty good bio. The ChatGPT likes you, Ben. Oh, all right. Well, I'm changing my tune on ChatGPT. I, I give it my strongest <laughs> endorsement. But I, I do think off there's... The charts, <laughs> off the charts makeup with ChatGPT. <laughs> I, I do think there's something to it, though. I mean, like you probably don't... Writing about pro prospects, it's not something that really comes into play a lot with like older players, like you know, for college guys or the guys who are in double A already. But mm-hmm. certainly, when you're watching players who are 16, 17, 18 years old in high school, it there is something to it, I think. And I don't know exactly why it would be, but. I mean, like Josh Noth this year in New York, kind of you another. Love you some Josh Noth, Ben. Yeah, I mean another another example of mm-hmm. a guy like that where always had really good and really hard curveball feel for spin on that pitch. The velocity was always like or wasn't, you know, popping super early on, and now it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of got the kind of the best of both worlds, like you were talking about before with uh, Noble Meyer, as far as the feel for pitching and some, you know uptick in velocity and, and mm-hmm. really good feel for for spinning a couple of breaking balls in his case yeah you you talked about the, the the pro age or college age players versus the younger guys and as you're saying that i was just like man it's it's really nice to cover amateur players because i feel like the uncertainty and the unknowns and the amount of projecting you have to do makes it a lot more fun like i don't know if um it, it's probably fun regardless of what level of prospect you're covering um, and we all do a little bit of both at Baseball America, but do you have a preference for the younger players? Because it, it really feels like you can kind of go out there and find some guys before they're before they're famous and really seeing the developmental path from earlier in a player's career to 
once they're 25 and getting to kind of physical peak and seeing what big league role they get into. It's, it's a pretty satisfying feeling now that I'm, I'm finally starting to get a few players at the big league level who I did see when they were like 16, 17. Yeah. Well, I, I just like being able to see the next, you know, up and coming generation, seeing the talent that's out there. And, you know, like then when you see it come across a guy like Ethan Salas, where it's just like, Oh my God, like it, it's hard not to get excited and just fired up about the future of baseball when you see a 16-year-old catcher like him. I mean, there really aren't 16-year-old catchers like him. That's probably a bad phrase, but when you see him, mm-hmm. it's it's just so exciting to to see that and I just enjoy, you know, sharing information and videos on players like that. There is sort of a point of you know, it, the international players can sign at 16, and if you go much younger than that, like one, I, I don't have a ton of interest in that anyway because you got to like just still wait and see on those players. But it's hard to have like real tools. <laughs> that word "real" again, yeah, like comp- you know, major league average or better tools at that point. Um, but by that, but you know, by 16, 17, by the time these guys are are signing, like yeah. Some of these guys can really stick out already, and you can kind of cast a wider net because yeah, there is just more uncertainty of who is going to pop, who is going to take that velocity jump, who is going to uh, you know take the next big step up as a position player in you know over the the next couple years, or, or maybe ends up going to college and mm-hmm. um, you know really popping there because i mean there's all kinds of guys who <laughs> don't get drafted who will end up being just elite elite picks coming out of college whereas in you know by the time they're in double a triple a not saying we hit on every single guy but by that point i hope we have a pretty good idea of, of who the guys are who you know really belong as elite prospects yeah Absolutely. Jeffrey Springs may be a notable exception to that. He's been a a fun late career bloomer. We can get into him and the Rays at some point in this podcast. Do you want to touch on the Rays or do you want to get into some minor league prospects who've been performing? Um, There's a couple guys that I wanted to chat about, but in terms of order of the operations here, I I have no preference, Ben. So where do you want to go first? It's a crazy start for the Rays, though. I mean, yeah. Tonight, as we record this, they just they just won their 13th game. it's 13 and 0. It, it it hasn't been the greatest competition, but I think it doesn't matter when you're at the major league level like putting a run together like this is is difficult no matter what. And yeah, they've looked phenomenal pitching, hitting, everything. It's been great to see. Yeah, it's they're still playing major league teams. Yeah. Uh it's I mean 13 and 0 and those 13 wins are in the bank and like you said, it's this doesn't seem like a fluky team. I mean, I'm not no, saying they're going 162 and 0, but <laughs> like you said, they're executing in just like every aspect mm-hmm. of the game. And now they're bringing up Taj Bradley. You you look at their farm system. I love mm-hmm. Curtis Mead. Kyle Manzardo, I think, is going to be an impact player for them. I mean, they traded for Mead. Look at what Junior Caminero is doing mm-hmm. down in the lower levels of their farm system. Another great trade by their pro scouting 
group. It just uh, at what point do you just not trade with the Rays at all? Like if the Rays are asking for a player from you, I'd be like, okay, well, what am I missing here? Uh, or is it just a case of their their pro development, their player development in general is just so good that maybe the Rays are capable of unlocking players in ways that that other orgs just aren't? Because it it seems like that's the case. They have an excellent track record with pitchers. Wander Franco looks like he's taking the step forward, going from like established, everyday regular to star. I mean, if if his breakout year happened this year, I don't think I would be shocked. He's hitting the ball harder. He's getting the ball in the air. I think he's already halfway to his war total from a year ago. Like everything about Franco's profile looks fantastic. Um, you mentioned Tosh Bradley coming up. They've got a loaded farm system. They entered the year with the number number seven farm system in baseball. It feels like they're consistently top 10 and in seven honestly feels low for the Rays because they're always like top top three, top five for us. And they just still have waves of talent coming. And it feels like every year they're good to take a player that we didn't really know of and turn them either into uh, a compelling piece to help the team win games or even like the upside of, of what Jeffrey Springs was. And I wanted to talk about Springs tonight and I was watching the game earlier today because he was starting against the Red Sox. Unfortunately, he left. He had uh, ulnar neuritis in his left arm. Um, they're going to re-evalu- reevaluate him Friday. So as you're listening to this podcast, maybe there's updated information on, on what was happening with him. But but Jeffrey Springs was a, a 38th round pick out of Appalachian State, never ranked highly as a prospect. The Red Sox DFA'd him uh, at one point. He comes over to the Rays as an effective reliever transitions to a starter role and early this year he he looked like one of the best pitchers in baseball the stuff plus numbers were great and i think in terms of like stuff plus it's probably underrating his best pitch and his changeup. um i was watching that pitch and just the location of that pitch the deception with the crossfire delivery the movement the the velocity gap between the fastball i mean he just looked phenomenal so hopefully i mean it's always scary when you hear about elbow stuff with pitchers um i'm kind of pessimistic about it at this point but man he was looking like i don't know how many people are like aware of how good jeffrey springs has been over the last year plus really he's been tremendous yeah i I think it's a combination of development and scouting and scouting on all fronts internationally in the draft obviously the like you mentioned the trades their pro scouting has been excellent i mean curtis mead i don't think they've really it's not like they overhauled anything with him it's just a really good hitter who they were able to identify at a young age in trade same with junior camonero mm-hmm. uh, but then you know look, look shane boz who they traded for and he's you know he's hurt now but at the same time he made some massive steps in terms of the development of his his control once the Rays got him and were able to work with him and he was throwing way more strikes than Mm -hmm. I ever thought he was going to so they just do so many things well in scouting and player development player acquisition and probably bothers a lot of people because they they just don't spend uh, a lot of money on the major league uh, payroll. But 
in everything else they're they just operate at such such an elite level and even through you know turnover it was obviously started there with with andrew friedman and he's been gone for for a while and they still plugging along yeah they keep going yeah it's been impressive Uh, i remember jj wrote in i think the overview of their um system and the prospect handbook that the raves uh, the Rays, excuse me, do as well as anyone in improving pitchers' control. They've done that. He also had a line in here about Wander Franco not taking not taking the leap yet from solid regular to potential superstar, and talked about how they kind of need Wander Franco to make that step forward for their offense to be good enough uh, to return to the World Series. And it, and it really looks like we're seeing that happen in real time, which is a ton of fun. Uh, through twelve games, Franco has four home runs. Uh, he's got a bucket of doubles as well. He's got seven doubles. Uh, like I said earlier, he's hitting the ball significantly harder than he did a year ago. The average exit velocity for him was 87.3. It's now 90. The launch angle is up. Um, he's barreling the ball more. Uh, the fly ball rate has gone from 31% to 53%. So, I mean, we, we've always known that Wander had the power in the tank. He, he didn't really ever have a huge season where he, he put up gaudy home run totals, but he also had some broken up minor league seasons because of COVID. Um, and I think power is, we consistently say, power is like the last thing to come. And if he's now elevating the ball consistently and hitting the ball harder, um, I think there's, there's great things to come for Wander Franco. We might see him kind of establish himself as this star that, that we, we knew he had the tools to be and the talent to be, and we're kind of seeing it happen. He's he's swinging out of the zone less. He's swinging pretty significantly less overall, making the same amount of contact that he was making a year ago. He's not swinging and missing much. So it, everything kind of looks fantastic for Franco under the hood. Um, well, I agree with everything you're saying, except that I, w- I think he was already a star coming mm-hmm. or a star count maybe i don't know how you classify it in terms of like fame or whatever but just yeah. as far as being an elite upper tier player that, in baseball i think that's fair because he was what 21 years old 20 years old when he first came up and he was i mean he was my rookie if i had a rookie of the year vote i would have picked him even though he didn't have as many games as i think it was uh who won that year for which year the rookie when he was rookie of the year eligible i th- i think i would have I, would, I remember having conversations with people about how wander franco if he had just been pulled up earlier he he would have clearly won the award on like a prorated basis he was definitely the best player oh, the best was that rookie. the rosa reina year i think it was 2021 yeah. right that was his first year so i think you're right maybe i'm discounting like the level that he's already reached but i think there is still a level that that people are kind of expecting him to take given his like number one prospect in baseball status. And maybe it's if you, if you just look at his numbers coming into the year, I mean, as a, as a 21 year old through his age, 20 and 21 seasons, he played in 153 games and was already a six war player, uh, just going off baseball reference. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know. To me, obviously, yeah, he didn't play a full season last year, so I think that probably hampers it. And it's it. 70 games and 83 games, so maybe that's as simple as it is. We just haven't had the one full season for him. Yeah, I mean, I do, to your point, I, I do think there's more 
in-game power for him to unlock because he does have, and he's always had, ridiculous, ridiculous bat speed. I mean, that was one of the first things that jumped out to me seeing him just taking BP when he was 15 years old was, my goodness, this is one of the fastest bats from both sides of the plate (laughs) that you're going to see. But then in games, it's not just a swing for the fences type approach back then it was just stay very short compact mm-hmm. put the ball in play very very little swing and miss and that's been consistent throughout his career but yeah as he learns like which pitches to take chances on and try to drive for damage to the pull side I, I do think there's going to be some bigger power numbers than what we were seeing in in the minor leagues I mean I always thought he could be a offensively just like a similar player to Jose Ramirez, which is like, you know, his boy back in his hometown. <laughs> so it feels like a little weird, but they really, I just think offensively can be similar type players. And then Franco obviously has the, you know, advantage where he can, you know, have more, more defensive value too. Yeah. And he's got, like I said, he's got four home runs already this season. Last year in 83 games, he had six. Uh, the year before that, he had seven home runs in 70 games. Um, so pretty safe to say that he's going to set a single season high in homers this year. Um, I mean, just the fact that he hopefully will get a full season would have done that regardless, but it does seem like just the frequency with which he's getting to that home run power in game has taken a step forward early this season. Um, and that's cool to see. Are you, are you as high on Kyle Manzardo as I am? You know, I, I kind of I remember reading Kyle Manzardo's report and seeing the seventy hit tool that we had on him and just wondering like, is this is this rich? Is this like a legitimate seventy? But the dude has always mashed, so I, I'm I think I'm coming around to the fact that he's just a phenomenal hitter. I'm probably not as high as you, but I acknowledge that he might be one of the best pure hitters in in the minors. Uh, so how, I mean, how excited about Manzardo are you? I think he's already off to a pretty good start. It feels like all of the Rays prospects who are in the top five, a lot of these guys who are in Durham have been off to a, a tremendous start so far this year. Yeah, which again is evidence that it's not just a small sample size because I really liked him coming yeah, into like the year. Yeah, you like him so, well, so yeah, it's banked. Yeah, yeah, he's been really good at AAA early on, but like you said, he's just been really good all the time. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I mean, a really good eye for the strike zone. It's a, it's a great approach, very nice, easy left-handed swing and it's it's calm it's balanced he's also been hitting the ball harder this year it seems like some early exit velocity numbers that i've seen like setting career highs um for max exit velos and he was already a guy who hit the ball really hard too so it's yeah i mean it's hitting ability strike zone judgment big power i mean the the bar is pretty high at first base like you really have to mash for me to get excited about you as a a first baseman and i think he pretty easily clears that bar it's it's just the i think the full package as a as a hitter i mean Mm -hmm. not as a runner or (laughs) anything like that the the run tool you know i'm just i'm out entirely because it's like bottom (laughs) bottom of the scale off the charts at the negative end for running ability for common zarda yeah bottom of the charts we can go with yeah bottom of the charts no he's a good one uh, and they have another hitter in Curtis Mead who, I mean, between these two, the fact that we have two 70s on these guys' hitting ability, 
that I mean, is there another system of baseball where we have someone right now with two seventies on their hit tool? That's a pretty loud grade to put on in general. Um, I don't I don't know that we do. Maybe Termar. I don't think the Pirates would have a, <laughs> another one no. in there right Brooks now. Brooks Lee had one in the draft. Um, I don't think anyone in that org has a 70 uh, on top of him. I don't even know. Let me pull up our top 100 and really quickly see who our 70 hit tool guys are. But, um, yeah, the system, what do you think about the state system? Because there are some guys here at the AAA level that you would think are going to graduate in the near future. What are your thoughts on the depth of the system beyond the top end, guys? Yeah, it's, you know, I think the depth is solid. Um, I really like I really like the top of their farm system. Uh, probably lower on on Shane Boz just because of the the He's health so situation. So hard to figure out. He he was probably one of the hardest players for me to put on my personal list when we were just creating the preseason top 100. I had no idea what to do with him. Yeah, well, you, you know me. Once these guys <laughs> have the the major arm operation, I get a little more. Yeah, cautious ben, than than ben, most, and ben I'm already more cautious on pitchers. Forget about Andrew Painter, so he's he's dead to you at this point. But they 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 do have yeah, like the guys like you know Brock Jones, um, you know they they have some other guys who have bigger tools and uh, and bigger risk too, through <laughs> uh, deeper deeper in their system. In their last draft, they took a bunch of those guys as well that I don't. I don't typically associate with Ray's sort of picks. Hang on, I, w- I was just looking through our top 100 seed tools, but now I want to pull up their most recent draft class because it was an interesting one. Um, Xavier out- Isaac. Just yeah. outside of all of, yeah, just outside of everything we're talking about with the Major League success, with Juan Franco. We haven't even really talked about Todd Bradley's debut, but yeah, them taking Xavier Isaac and then Brock Jones 1-2. These were both guys with like pretty massive tools and pretty significant questions um, about the pure hitting ability. Uh, and so I wonder if there's something with both of these players that they just think, oh, we can get them to make a little bit more contact for X reason. Because they always figure out uh, how to get the most out of their players. Isaac was a guy who, I mean, maybe if he was on the showcase circuit during the 2021 summer he he would have been a little bit easier for teams to figure out the fact that he didn't really have much track record hitting against great competition i know was a big question mark and and added to the risk factor for him but i haven't heard it's probably him and reese hines in a tier of their own in terms of high school hitters raw power like how exceptional um scouts view that raw power the the feedback that i was getting on isaac's raw power was insane maybe maybe the most excited that i've ever heard scouts talking about just the raw power potential for him it's true off the charts raw power potential (laughs) with with isaac and and then brock jones another guy he has power he has speed he showed good uh, plate discipline uh he's big and physical and it was just a bunch of questions about the swing and miss um the stiffness of the swing the rhythm and timing that he showed in the box so like if they get these guys to hit there's a lot of upside here um so those were i guess the the two at the very top it was it was an interesting draft but i think i've been conditioned to just assume the rays know what they're doing and anytime they're making picks i'm like oh that's gonna work out well because it's the rays it's almost a little bit like i think of the dodgers 
whoever those guys are taking, I just assume it's going to work out well for them because it just has. The uh, one guy, I wonder if we'll start talking about him being a 70-hit guy going forward is Jackson Holiday. Yeah. He, like, everything just seems to come back more and more glowing mm-hmm. on him. I mean, Orioles, number one overall pick last year and just off to a great start again this year. Yeah, his second game, he went four for five, uh, four-hit game, four RBIs. Um, the walk to strikeout is good. I think he's gotten on base in every game so far this year. It's just five games. I'm not sure what he did tonight, if they're playing tonight. But um, it's a really loud start, and he was one of these guys – that, like you said, we kept hearing really, really positive reviews when we were doing, I mean, even going back to like February or March, it seems like Jackson Holiday just strapped himself onto a rocket ship and he's still elevating from then. He, he boosted up into the first round. I remember a few weeks ago, I was talking to some scouts and they're like, yeah, I was really excited about Jackson Holiday. We were looking at him in the middle of the first round, and then he kind of just flew up past us. And I realized, like halfway through the year, we had no shot at getting him. Uh, we put him on the top 100, and it was just like keep pushing him up, keep pushing him up, keep pushing him up. It's just been nothing but positive feedback from the industry for Jackson, and and he's performing like it too. I mean, he he was probably one of the early favorites this year when we were looking ahead at 2024 number one overall prospects in baseball. He would have been on the short list. Um, I guess has he surprised you in any way? Have you been able to see much of him? I think just hearing last year about how much his tools jumped so much in you know from the summer going into his senior year to where they are now has been impressive to to hear, and then the way the that he's able to control the strike zone has been. Extremely yeah. impressive and not surprising, but when you, you know, he's at 114 plate appearances, at least coming into tonight, and he's got 29 walks and 15 strikeouts <laughs> just for his career. Yeah. So that's, you know, so a little bit of, you know, Florida complex league, but that's an age appropriate league for him. But the rest of it's all been in, in low A. I mean, most of it's come actually in, in low A between this year and mm-hmm. last year. So he, he just, he seems to check so many boxes that you look for as a hitter with a great ability to track pitches, recognize spins, stay disciplined within the strike zone. The swing is so short and efficient, and it's so fluid and easy with good path through the zone, so he makes a ton of contact. It seems like he's able to square up whatever type of pitch you throw at him in whatever part of the strike zone. Uh, and then, you know, hearing some of the reports of the uptick in in the power that maybe hasn't shown up so much in games yet, but mm-hmm. very, very little doubt that that's something that's going to come eventually yes. for him, too. So he's just like, like you said, we have him at number 13 right now in our top 100. It's like, well, you know, Gabriel Moreno and Grayson Rodriguez and Francisco Alvarez and... Jordan Walker and like Volpe. I mean, just even just the fact that these guys are going to graduate at some point, you mm-hmm. know, within the next couple months ahead of him means it's pretty good bet to be a top 10 prospect. And he really does feel like, 
you know, we'll be talking about him as a top five and potentially putting him in that, you know, yeah. number one conversation. Yeah, I already regret not moving him up uh, more in our draft rankings. I remember it was like a few weeks prior to the draft. We're still making like late tweaks. I'm like, man, people keep raving about Jackson Holiday. We had him at three at the time. I was like, I think we probably should get him like number two. We ended up not doing it. So in hindsight, I would have shut him up a little bit more. An- another shortstop from the 2022 uh, draft, another first rounder, is Cole Young. He's off to a nice start as well. Another guy you talked about how well Jackson Holiday manages the zone and sees the ball. Uh, Cole Young is another guy with, with more walks than strikeouts so far in his young minor league career. Uh, 2023 in low A, he's walked six times, struck out three times. Uh, a couple multi-hit games, um, hits in each game so far this year. His entire minor league production is is pretty tremendous overall. Again, it's not a, not a huge sample. It's only a little over 20 games. Um, but he was always a super polished hitter out of high school and is kind of living up to that reputation as just a really advanced young player. Ben, I know he was from the the Pennsylvania area. It seems like Cole Young is, is kind of your classic type of player that, that you find yourself liking. But right now, number two prospect in the Mariners system. I don't know that he has the sort of physical upside that Jackson Holiday does. Um but maybe he's a little Volpe-ish and, and he'll add some strength and the tools will jump just a little bit. And we could be talking about him as one of the best pl- prospects in baseball. It's been nothing but, but good results so far. Yeah. He was one of my favorite players last year mm-hmm. when the, I, I was su- maybe not surprised, but I, I, I would have taken him earlier than where the Mariners got him at 21 mm-hmm. overall. He's just extremely hitterish type of player where the, the, it's not that he doesn't have tools, but it's not like, oh, he's a 70 runner or, or he's just a super bursty, explosive type of athlete uh, or, or somebody who's super flashy in the field and, and going to grab your attention. Although he does, you know, field his position, well, he does have good actions there. But mm-hmm. um, just just watching him swing, it's just so, so compact, so easy. The, the, the barrel stays through the hitting zone for such a long time. He he goes, he can pull the ball. He goes the other way uh, with with such ease. Um, he just makes everything look so easy and natural in the box. I I just thought, like I don't know what what is the difference between him and Holiday. I mean, it seems like Holiday's tools maybe have mm-hmm. have jumped out more than Cole Young. But I I also think Cole Young has a chance to be a. a premium hitter at a premium position somebody you can really hit at the top of the lineup and and play like pretty solid defense somewhere in the middle infield yeah I think so I think it's probably just a little less upside with most of the tools compared to holidays is where I'd say the difference is I mean I think that holiday has a chance to be a more impactful defender at shortstop I think while Cole Young is a very good defender, I think he, he could be a similar defender again to Anthony Volpe. To, I mean, Volpe is a player that he consistently earned comparisons to throughout his draft year, and I think he's probably a similar defender where he's just a very reliable, fluid defender who maybe doesn't have the, the elite range or the, the big arm that 
you maybe prefer for your shortstop. So it wouldn't shock me if he stuck at the position and played it well. It also wouldn't shock me if he wound up moving to first or second base, excuse me, and was like a really good defender there. I think you could probably also question like what what's the ultimate power upside for him. So just in terms of like upside potential, I think that you maybe would have to be a little bit more conservative with a guy like Cole Young compared to what you probably can dream on with Jackson Holiday. But I mean, he does everything really well, and and we see players consistently who it just seems like even if the tool set isn't super explosive, there are these players who just get the most out of what they have, and and the tools play up a little bit and. It would not shock me at all if Cole Young was that that kind of player. Yeah, and he the one thing he does extremely well is the most important thing, which is hit. I mean, he just has such a yep. good tracker of doing that as an amateur. We're seeing it more in pro ball now. Um, obviously not a, a big sample size the, the last couple of years, but mm-hmm. um, it's, it's pretty clear that everything visually, the way the swing works – uh, and then his ability to control the strike zone, good good results there. And then another guy where I think there's going to be there's going to be some power there. Like it's not going to be probably you know forty plus home run guy, but I mm-hmm. think there's going to be more than enough power for him to you know it's not it's not Tamar Johnson type of bat speed and exactly yeah and power, but it's I, I think it's going to be a Good. I mean, it, you know, say I would say the same thing about uh, Kevin McGonigal again. Another, mm-hmm. you know, left. Kevin McGonigal feel. I feel like he fits perfectly in this phylum of player. Maybe, maybe a little bit better bat to ball and a bit, a little bit less defense, but otherwise pretty similar overall. Yeah, yeah, I could see maybe. Yeah, probably some more. I'd say generally, scouts probably see more a little bit more second base risk, mm-hmm. not risk, but you know, chance that he ends up at second base. Yeah. I, I, I would. I probably like McGonagall more at shortstop than most people, but I mean, there's no disagreement on his <laughs> hitting exactly. ability from anybody. If you did, I would probably question what you're. <laughs> it's watching, hard to. But. It would be hard to be skeptical of a guy like Kevin McGonagall who just has never not performed anywhere. Like, what exactly would be the concern with a guy who's literally hit everywhere? Um, yeah, these. It's, it feels like there's a player like this in each draft class that I've covered, like this undersized, smaller, polished middle infielder who's just a great hitter. Um, and these players, they've done pretty well so far. I wonder who the, the player is going to be next year. But I, I did want to ask you, you talked about you would take Cole Young um, sooner than where the Mariners were able to grab him. He, he was kind of consistently lumped into this trio of high school hitters, Cole Young, Justin Crawford, Jet Williams, kind of as we approached the draft, everyone's like, yeah, these three guys feels like they're going to go in the middle of the first round somewhere. Could be any order of those three. Would you have taken Cole Young at the very top? Cause I know you were yes. consistently high on him, but you were also pretty high on uh, Justin Crawford as well. Yeah. I mean, they're so different, very like, different. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Crawford Philly's first round pick. I, I like that pick for them. He's, you know, obviously, son of Carl Crawford, you can tell just, well, you, obviously, he, he looks like his dad just in the face, but then he's that kind of explosive runner and athlete in a super long, rangy type frame. And when I saw him, not just the athleticism and, and the speed at a premium position in center field, but I, I liked his back control, too. I, I thought he had a pretty good feel for making contact. Uh, if, you know, if a guy's a phenomenal athlete and he's just swinging and missing all the time uh i'm probably not gonna have a lot of 
interest, but he he wasn't just like this, you know, crude athlete. He was a, an explosive athlete with outstanding, uh, you know, off the charts. I guess you could say off type the charts, of yeah. type of speed. But I thought also had a you know really good good back control, and I think you know we'll see about the power. I don't know how much bigger and like stronger he's gonna get, but there's certainly a lot of room to fill out i think he could end up surprising people with that but yeah i just think cole young is is just i thought he was just one of the best hitters in in that class he's just such a long track record of doing it Uh, i think he's i think he can stay at shortstop so when you have a shortstop with that kind of hitting ability on base skills uh, and and who i think can, can play shortstop too to me that's somebody who should be going in the the top 15 Picks in the draft, seeing him and Collier go down the board. Obviously, Collier got paid like yeah. a, a higher pick, but seeing those guys move, still get be undrafted at the top, uh, whatever it was, fifteen or, or so picks. I was like, somebody, somebody <laughs> get get these guys off the board already. Yeah, well, there's going to be another one this year. The Mariners are are picking twenty two overall. They've got a ton of bonus pool money. They've got two picks after the first round, so. I imagine they got a chance to add another guy who who maybe we think you know probably should have gone a little higher, but once he starts could, slipping, that's a good landing spot. Could, could be Kevin McGonagall. I mean, <laughs> and that's another one. I think I, the way this class is going to work, I think, is going to be interesting in a lot of ways. And I'm curious to get into a conversation about the the two top high school players in the class now compared to like Drew Jones a year ago, who was our number one player in the class. This year, I think they're comparable talents in the high school outfield duo of Max Clark and Walker Jenkins, but they're probably not going to go as high as Drew Jones and Jackson Holiday did just because the class is so different. The college impact talent at the top is so good. There are going to be some high school players that we really like who probably slide down a bit further than they would in an average draft year and, and maybe a little bit more than we would expect just, just given the talent of the class as well. Um, but I'm kind of curious about the talent level of a Drew Jones compared to a Max Clark and compared to a Walker Jenkins, who Jenkins has also been getting a ton of really rave reviews from, from the scouting industry so far. Like I know that Dylan Cruz is the favorite for the number one overall pick, but I really think that Walker Jenkins is in play for a lot of the teams that are picking top five. Oh yeah. He's, they should be excited. That guy's a monster. We've been saying it for two years. Yeah. <laughs> he's, to me, it's always been there have been two guys in this high school class who are have just completely going back again for the last couple of years separated themselves from the pack, and that's Walker Jenkins and Max Clark. And like we've had Clark ahead to this point, but I think I've just consistently said like flip a coin on yeah. those two guys because they're both to me one one potential type talents it just so happens that this year we have dylan cruz hitting 500 with a ton of walks and a ton of power and playing center field and then we have this other monster on his team who's paul skeens throwing uh you know 102 miles an hour with an absolute wipeout (laughs) slider and striking out what 52 percent of hitters or whatever it is now last i checked it was over 51 percent of hitters yeah in the SEC, just continuing just to just annihilate everyone in a year that seems pretty healthy for for offense right mm-hmm. now. So if you know if 
Yeah, if like it, I'd be curious if what would happen if Clark and Jenkins and it's it's tough because maybe I think Jenkins probably has a lot of buzz one because he's so so good, but he's also in North Carolina, so he's played a lot already this season. Whereas Clark is in Indiana, where it's mostly been like you know off the charts cold so far, yeah. and he's probably only played like five or six games. But yeah. This is uh, this is a question I asked as well when we were getting such positive feedback of Walker this spring because I, I kind of entered the year thinking that both Walker and Max kind of did what they were going to do, establish their draft stock, and it would really be tough to move the needle too much because I mean for both of these guys it's high school competition. You can probably compare and contrast the the North Carolina competition versus what Max Clark is facing, but I think. Overall, they're they're playing against pitchers who they just simply overmatch, just physically on a talent level. Um, that I I kind of didn't expect there to be as much movement as maybe there actually will be, and I think that maybe even for Max Clark, I'd say he was probably he probably came into the year almost at a disadvantage in some ways because he had done everything over the summer. He hit, he proved himself. He he kind of established where he was at and i think there is something to the players who are behind and have room to move up a board as opposed to the player who's already at the top you don't really have anywhere to go i don't know if this is like some sort of bias or momentum effects going into the spring but it does feel like because walker didn't play over the summer and now people are finally seeing him um as we get close to the draft there's there's just like this excitement that maybe you wouldn't have if he had been healthy on the summer showcase circuit and had just mashed the whole time. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I really don't know that you get much more of an advanced feel of like his pure hitting ability than you probably already had um, from his track record as an underclassman, right? Well, he was hurt last. He got hurt early last summer, mm-hmm. so like you said, he, it wasn't like he was playing a lot. So it probably there's probably just a lot of national guys who hadn't seen maybe a ton of him and maybe they're just coming in and seeing a lot more of him now because if you have history on him, like we do going back a couple or a few years now, like (laughs) already, uh, you know, jumping up and down about him. And I know like Carolina's scouts who (laughs) have seen a lot of him over the years are like, this this guy is is just an absolute animal like he's 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 big he's physical he's athletic he is has like a chance to play center field because he's not Mm -hmm. he's not the same runner that Clark is but his instincts there are so good and then if he has to go to right field fine who cares like he'll be an above average defender over there and hit 30 plus home runs and has a great swing that is just impossible it's my to, favorite to swing miss. in the class yeah. for sure just like visually aesthetically how it works how easy it is like how smooth it is it's like this classic power hitting left-handed hitter swing that i feel like in a few years when he's in the majors that'll be a swing that people are like man walker jenkins he has that that classic lefty swing that everyone loves to watch that's yeah. the kind of swing he has yeah he's he's elite i mean to me i don't know how you would stack them up i, I would take Clark and Jenkins ahead of Drew Jones. Maybe I'm just super high on both Clark and Jenkins. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think both those guys, I mean, Drew's defense is 
And, and Clark is a really good defender too. Drew's defense is. Did you see the catch is, that Drew made the other day? I don't know if it was the debut that he had um, with Vesalia, but it was very early in the season. He had this circus catch deep in center field. Did you see that? Yeah, it looked like his dad. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he was just going. He made it look so easy too. He just that over the over the shoulder running up, running back on the ball play where it's like that's a nineteen year old center fielder yeah. making that catch look so much easier than than it should be. Mm-hmm. So his defense, I mean him, Pete Crow Armstrong, like those two guys are the best defensive center fielders in the minors. So defensively, yeah. Obviously I would have I would have Drew ahead, but mm-hmm. I, I think the power with Jenkins, the and the hitting ability with both Clark and Jenkins, I would feel more comfortable having those guys than I would with Drew. Yeah, I think I'd take uh, – personally, I would take Jenkins as the number one guy of this group. I'm a little more back and forth on Drew versus Max Clark. I think the one hang-up that I always had with Drew is like his swing doesn't always look the easiest. And it, it, I feel like it was disconnected at times when I saw it between the upper and lower halves. Like I saw him roll over on the ball and hit it on the ground – a decent amount of times in my looks but but then i also saw a decent amount of games too where he just kind of flicked his hands and drove the ball with surprising power to the right center gap that always stood out clark i i probably be more confident in the hit tool with clark and i think just given some of the players that i've probably missed on over the past few years just leaning towards that really good defensive profile like probably should just go with the guys who feel a little bit more confident in the hitting ability so i think i would probably also take them both over Drew if I had to line them up right here. Uh, And I think that speaks to the talent of this year's class, the fact that we're talking about these two guys as as maybe we like them better than Drew Jones, who we had as the number one player a year ago and who went number two overall and only got uh, a few less dollars in terms of signing bonus than Jackson Holiday, who went right in front of him. So it's an impressive duo. Drew Jones off to a one-for-19 start. Yeah. With 10 strikeouts. Is that small sample size or? Yeah, small that, sample, small yeah, sample. Small we can't sample. take anything from that, Ben. We can't take anything from that. Yeah. I, I am more, I am more hesitant probably on him, certainly than the, the rest of the industry. I, I, well, and you know what? This is like, like alarm bells are going off in my head here because you were also the guy I feel like consistently were much more pessimistic on Christian Pache when we had him as a top prospect. I feel like you were always like, yeah, I don't really know about the bat with him. I mean, you maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but I feel like you were always the person in the room who was like, yeah, we should lower him. And so when you're saying this now, I'm like, man, Ben's going to be right again. I mean, I didn't think Pache was going to be this bad. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that, was, that was not in my forecast. But, um, yeah, I mean, like you said, I just I think the swing – the natural feel for for hitting with Clark and Jenkins is just like a, a good cut above mm-hmm. Jones, but uh, you know, obviously, it's it's super super early in the season. Would you still have Jackson Holiday ahead of all of these all these guys? I mean, that's why. Like again, like going back to last year, like yeah. that's why I liked like Termar so much, and he's you know he's not playing right now, but like you know, and I like again, like I like Elijah Green too, but. Another guy with like some concerning swing and miss risk there yeah. too, but also we just obvious seen some video upside. Of him 
recently where he was waving through some pitches that I mean he has a tendency to do that even when I saw good looks of Elijah Green he would he would wave through some pitches with the best of them but at the same time I think he's just such a different hitter from a lot of these guys I mean he's he's doing damage so far he's hitting 368 despite a 10 to 1 strikeout to walk rate so far in uh low a dang he has 10 strikeouts already yeah yeah, but then like yeah, <laughs> That'll again. Be a bit concerning. But in terms of yeah, Jackson Holiday versus these two, I think uh, I, I, like part of me really wants to take Walker Jenkins because his swing is so beautiful. But I think I, I'm I'm just gonna have to go with the left-handed hitting shortstop with all the tools, with the physical upside, who's who's really just been great in his limited time in pro ball. I think I would I would just take him. Um, I don't know. You'd you'd have to really think that there was a gap in terms of like the hitting projection or the power or both between Jenkins and Clark versus Holiday. I think to take those two because I, I think he is going to be an impactful uh, shortstop as well, and that that gives me kind of an edge for him. So I would go Holiday. I would go Jenkins. I would go Clark. Then Jones probably. Yeah, I would have. I would still have Holiday ahead of these guys too, just based on him playing shortstop and him, you know, just the fact that he's been able to have some track record already in pro ball. I have very little doubt that Jenkins and Clark are going to be able to hit the ground running mm-hmm. right away. But just how you know, it's just a little bit of an edge there for Holiday, and then everything else we talked about is just so advanced with him and the yeah. ability to play shortstop and all the tools but i mean look I, you were you were super high on james wood coming into the draft and like i was like man even in the second round i don't know but he's <laughs> like the kind of guy yeah like there are guys who have swing and miss issues in high school and james wood i mean she's we could probably talk about him every podcast but mm-hmm. uh there man, are a few guys just, we have that i think we can we can and maybe we'll talk about them every podcast hey james wood so far six strikeouts no walks Hitting 389 in high A. Uh, no home runs, but he's got a triple and a double. Um, so, solid start for him. And, you know, another guy that I'm, I'm interested in talking about and hearing your thoughts on, because I think Jackson Holiday could maybe take a tip from his uh, his Baltimore... I don't know. Are they teammates? Yeah, they're both playing on Delmarva. So, Samuel Basayo, catcher with the Orioles. Uh, yeah. Number, number 15 overall pick. He's already got four... No, two home runs, excuse me. I'm getting a little too excited. But his power, just seeing some some video, seeing the reports that we have on his power, the fact that it's already showing up as an 18-year-old is pretty exciting. What do you have on Samuel Basayo? Well, he's gigantic. I mean, <laughs> he's, a, he's a very big catcher with big, big power um, and a big arm, too. So... It's one, it's it's just really nice to talk about Orioles international signings mm-hmm. with some excitement for a change. So I think you're not you don't miss like lambasting them for not getting in the market. Not really. Like there's only so many times you can say like what 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 is going on with this ownership and their you know complete... We'll see the books soon so you can find out all the details you need to know about the yeah. ownership. But it's oh right when they open their <laughs> finances. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This guy though, eight strikeouts, one walk for for Mr. Samuel Ben. I think you got to get out on that. Well, he's. I mean, the three forty eight, three seventy five, six fifty two, and last year nineteen walks to thirty two strikeouts mm. in or was that 
No, I'm looking at the wrong year. 20, that was 2021 DSL. 2021. Um, but he, yeah, I mean, it's it's big power. That's always been the the calling card with him. It might be, I mean, you have a chance for a catcher who could potentially hit, you know, 30 home runs. So, you know, catchers don't play quite as much, but um, he he could he could do that. Um, and there's, you know, there's certainly like enough feel for, for hitting in there. I think one of the questions on him is just, you know, there aren't a lot of six foot four catchers in the big leagues. Like there just aren't a lot of guys that, that size who, Mm -hmm. who stay behind the plate and, you know, he's got to improve, excuse me, improve the blocking and receiving. So there's, there's a chance he, ends up outgrowing it and goes to first base, but I hope he can catch because he, he has absolutely monster, monster power for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for an 18 year old. And he's, yeah, it's the thing too. He's still 18. Cause he's, he just, he, he was young for yeah that signing class. So, um, you know, he could practically be, uh, you know, the following years class that he'd been born like a, a few weeks afterwards. Yeah, I'm curious to see what the contact rates and the overall strikeout rates are going to look like for him once we get into kind of like half the season, a quarter of the season in low A. Because, I mean, just going through a DSL season at age 16 and putting up some numbers he did, the tools that he has, he's he's really exciting. And yet another fun player in the Orioles system to kind of dive into. It's not like they uh, have a ton of those players walking around at this point. Um, any other guys who have impressed you early on this season that you want to talk about? I mean... Matthew Libertor is he's another one who you're talking about a player who slid down the board um, further than you expected in Cole Young. Matthew Libertor was kind of my first experience of a player sliding down the board in the draft. I remember it was my first year covering the draft for Baseball America. We had him number two overall on our board. He slid to 16th overall. Again, it was the Rays. I think the Rays and the Royals that year at 16 and 18. They had a bunch of pool money to throw around. Um, so that's probably a factor with it, but he didn't get a massively over slot deal at the time. I remember just being very surprised by that. Um, he's been pretty good. Three starts so far this year with AAA Memphis. Um, 24 strikeouts, seven walks, 1.06 ERA so far. Both the fastball and the curveball. He's thrown in the zone consistently. The curveball looks really good. It's a high spin pitch. I think the last time I had looked, it was like 70% um, rate for strikes, which is impressive for, for that sort of pitch shape and movement coming off a game against Triple A Gwinnett where he struck out 10 after back-to-back seven strikeout games. I mean, he's a guy who I, I feel like he could help the Cardinals right now. Their pitching isn't fantastic. I think they're bottom third in the league in terms of starting pitching, just production overall, runs allowed, ERA, Strikeout to walk ratio, all of that. I know they have Adam Wainwright coming back at some point in the near future, but he made his debut last year. wasn't great. I think he's made some tweaks. I was still pretty high on him. Um, and this is a case, Ben, where the sample size is enough. It's not a small sample. This is this is him just kind of uh, proving me right, right? Well, Three starts, it, that's all we need. In his case, it seems like there actually is a tangible difference in just the quality of his stuff, hmm. right? Like the stuff seems like it's better than it was a year ago. So that gives me more confidence because, I mean, you said last year he wasn't great, 
in his big league debut. He wasn't yeah. very good in AAA <laughs> either. That's true. I mean, he had an ERA over five. Strikeout rate was all right. It's it's jumped this year. Strikes are about the same, but it does seem like the stuff has ticked back up this year. So that's encouraging because last year was I was pretty concerned <laughs> last year. Mm-hmm. Um, like I I'm not I didn't see a top 100 guy last year, but I I know you were still high on him, and so far that's that's looking astute. Yeah, I'm not sure what the jump in stuff would be. He's sitting around 95 with his fastball. I think he's touched 98 maybe, gotten to some 97s. The curveball has always been this like kind of power downer, slower curveball that maybe is not like the most popular sort of breaking pitch for a player to throw at this point. I think maybe he's just like proved the command just enough to where it's just playing a little bit better now. But I mean, maybe it's a case where he's just gone off to a hot start and we'll, we'll continue to have some of the, the strikeout questions, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like I've kind of always just bought into him being a good enough pitcher um, and having the sort of stuff that he has from the left side, the size that he has. I just like all of the elements that he brings to the table and, and, bought on him figuring it out because he was also a guy who always was talked about as just being very advanced in how he thought about the game, the adjustments he made. I think he's just going to be one of those guys who can tinker enough to to make the adjustments he needs to make. But Well, he's, I mean, he's sitting mid-90s mm-hmm. now. It, it seems like the velocity is up at least a little bit of a, a tick this year. I'm not saying he's throwing like, I don't know, 102 miles an hour. <laughs> But just where he's sitting as a starter and his ability to hold that velocity yeah. deeper into games seems like an uptick from where he was at last year, which is encouraging for for me to see with him. Yeah, I hope he gets I hope he gets promoted to the big leagues again, and we can see if he maybe has a little bit more success in his next stint. Uh, any other names for you that you want to touch on? Uh, it's been yeah, it's tough to like go to. Uh, too hot, too, too early. But uh, I mean, that Reds low A team is pretty fun. We talked mm-hmm. about some of those guys before. With uh, obviously, like you know, they got Cam Collier and Sal Stewart from the draft last year. They got a couple really good international signings, and or uh, uh, one they traded for from the Padres in uh, Victor Acosta, shortstop. Uh, one they signed out of Venezuela, like a nice young signing, Leonardo Balcazar, mm-hmm. off to a good start. Ariel Almonte, outfielder who they signed for big money, off to a good start. Like, I don't know. To me, that's they're they're just like loaded with like really exciting young, like mostly nineteen year old <laughs> um, prospects up and down that team. I, I think that's that's one of the more fun teams in the minor leagues right now, especially at the lower levels. Yeah, that's a good one. And Cam Collier is off to a hot start. He's only played three games, though. Yeah, he's only played a little bit. So Yeah, still hitting well. I think everything he's done in pro ball has been good. Cade Hunter is actually an interesting one, too, on that roster who had some interesting tools out of the draft. Um, and, and I was kind of curious. He had a really good platform here. Um, I'll be interested to see what their views are with him. But that is a good team to highlight. Yeah, Carlos and- Jorge is on that team, too. Like a little... Uh- Ben Badler-ish type guy of uh, 
He must be on Sm- six foot. Yeah, smaller guy who can make a lot of contact. Yeah. Good athlete, can run second base most likely, long term mm-hmm. fit. But yeah, that's a that's a good team right there. You know, as I was pulling up this team, I found another um, another phrase that I that that kind of annoys me, and that's um, referring to minor league affiliates as at least on MLB's official sites, it goes triple A, double A, high A, single A. Single A is offensive to me too. It needs to be That is a weird term. Yeah, because they just don't want to call it low. Yeah, there are two A levels. Oh, like it's like Yeah, high high A versus (laughs) low A. No, high A versus single. We can't we can't be mean to these players who are in low A. That's gotta be the thinking, right? Why is it low A versus single A? I don't know the that 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 could be it. <laughs> I really think that's what that, it is. That, that would, would not. That that's would the only thing that makes me. sense to me. Why wouldn't you just call it low A? Everyone else does. It's always been low A. Yeah, because the high A is there's only one A, so yeah. there's only a single A in high A. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I, I really think it's so they don't hurt the kids' feelings who are at the the single A team. But anyways, that's a good one. Um, I think those are the only guys who really jumped out to me. There, there are plenty of players doing things, but we hit on the highlights. Um, we have some questions that we can get into if you want to do that, Ben. Yeah, let's hop in. All right. So we got an email from Bryce. Um, and again, thank you guys for sending us emails. We appreciate that. Uh, it's futureprojection at baseballamerica.com if you have any emails you want to send us. Um, and don't worry if you don't get into it in, in the immediate episode following, because sometimes um, it's just easier to throw a couple mailbag questions together. So we still have them just because you asked it one day and we didn't immediately answer it doesn't mean we won't. So uh, keep your fingers crossed, I guess, if you send us a question we haven't answered yet. But Bryce wants to know about the DSL and Complex Leagues. He says, I was hoping you guys could spend some time explaining the DSL and Complex Leagues. I know a little. ESL is in Dominican, usually first stop for international signees, etc. And that complex leagues are usually the first stop for that same group for their stateside debuts. But could you talk about the differences? And my big question is, could the complex leagues ever be used to replace the recently cut short season leagues? I heard in your podcast and other BA podcasts about the impact of short season leagues being cut, especially with high school signees. Could this be used for the high school draftees or not so much? He goes on, um, a little bit, but I, I kind of just want to put that part of the question to you first, Ben. Yeah. So the, yeah, the Dominican summer league, pretty almost every single player now who signs out of Latin America will make their debut there. Um, you know, like Ethan Salas will probably, will will definitely be an exception this year, but otherwise, yeah, every, every team in baseball has an Academy in the Dominican Republic that they use for, uh, various purposes, but one of them is that's where you know they they house their their players who are going to play in the Dominican Summer League, and they have you know each club has probably like two to four fields there, so they play DSL games there, and then the next year they'll well some players will obviously repeat the DSL, but you know ideally the uh, you know, the top players will then get promoted the following year, either to the Florida complex league or, uh, the Arizona complex league. Uh, and then those complex leagues in Florida or Arizona is typically where your, you know, your high school players will make their pro debut. Um, but it's, this is where it's getting trickier now too, 
because without short season leagues, right, like without the New York Penn League, without the Northwest League or what were, you know, the advanced rookie leagues like the Pioneer League, the Appalachian League, with those all gone, that was typically where you would send your your college draft picks or your international signees maybe who are or some of your high school draft picks too who you know maybe they're 19 years old but they're just not quite ready yet to play in low a or there just isn't a roster spot there right like you want a guy to develop at shortstop so you want him to play shortstop and there's only (laughs) you know one shortstop position at low a and you could have a guy play second base or give him some exposure to third base just to get his bat in the lineup. But ideally, you have as many, you know, roster spots as or as many teams as possible to to play there. But um, you know, teams are running into a logjam now, and it's going to get uh, even tighter because you're going down from they're going to go down from 180 to 165 players as far as the number of the number of players you can keep in in your minor league pipeline. Um, so it's tough. And basically what's going to happen, I, I think, is you're just not going to have and, – and MLB may ultimately just uh, make this decision that you can no longer have two teams in the complex leagues yeah. because right now, right now some teams do, and I think it's a big advantage because you just have more – more roster spot or more, you know, more spots in a lineup to play yeah. players, more you opportunities. Have more lottery tickets, right? That's that would be the the thinking, right? Yeah, it's why so many teams have two teams also in the Dominican Summer League, and a lot of the clubs down there now who only have one team. Um, you know, sometimes they they just physically don't have the space to house more than one team at their DSL or at their Dominican Academy, so they only have one team, but like they're in an even tighter roster crunch spot right now as far as getting playing time for all these guys. But if teams can only go down to one DSL or, you know, say you could still keep two DSL teams, hopefully, but if, if you're only down to one GCL, one FCL uh, or ACL team, um, you know, that makes it even tighter for, for playing time for, for guys there. Uh, he also went on to ask. I don't know if you if this was answered enough in in your first response there, but he basically asks: um, Is there a chance that complex leagues could evolve into a league for the high school draftees as well as international signings? That the uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think right now that's kind of what it is. Um, the complex leagues are are pretty heavily filled with uh, especially international players and then your high school draft picks who are are signing uh, you know with the draft being later in the year now than it used to be pushed back uh, you know to July and instead of June a lot of the pitchers just won't even pitch yeah. anymore because it's been... tough too because for the pitchers you're ramping up early in the year for your your spring season and then most people are done at some point in June. So you have a couple, you have a little more than a month for most players before the draft. I mean, some players who are injured will pitch before the draft, but 
let's just say you, you ramp up for your spring season, your season ends, you're not pitching for about a month prior to the draft. Um, then you get drafted. August 1st is a signing deadline. Are you going to take the time to ramp up and throw again when in, in many cases you've already thrown like a, a typical for, full season workload for a month of the minor league season? It's it's kind of tricky to, to kind of ramp people up and down like that when you want to take care of their arms that you just invested a, a decent amount of money in, in many cases for, I would imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, and now we're seeing the college guys, instead of going to a short season league, a lot of them will just go to low A to get started in their career. Or, you know, sometimes if, you know, if they're super advanced, might even get pushed higher than that. Uh, or some of them are playing in the complex league just really is not ideal because you don't, you know, a league of having guys who are college draft picks competing against, you know, 18 year old high school and Latin American players is, is not ideal. So it's, you know, it's just unfortunate that we no longer have those short season leagues anymore because it really was a good kind of in-between opportunity for, for players who just weren't quite ready to make that jump to full season ball, but still need playing opportunities without creating this log jam of players who are ready to come over now and play in, in the complex leagues from the Dominican summer league or coming out of the draft. But there are other guys who you still need to hold back from full season baseball, but you need to have them. <laughs> the only other place for them to play now is in the complex league. So just talking to a lot of, you know, especially a lot of international uh, scouts recently, they're they're kind of seeing and really lamenting kind of the impact that it's had on on the you know what they're able to do with Latin American players and probably just taking you know fewer chances on players who might be further out and, and maybe more raw, more crude in their baseball skills because there's just a higher bar now to um, that that you just have to be ready to to play in that full season league at, uh, at a younger age now. Yeah, it really is unfortunate because I mean, for the, for the draft kids on the high school side, there, there's another route to go and it's the college route. I mean, it seems like everything that's happened at the minor league level is to incentivize um, more and more players to develop in college, but that that's not an option for a lot of the international players. So there's just this like vacuum of, okay, what happens now if you're, you have some talent, but you're not really ready for this, this only league that we can put you in. Like, it just seems like, like you said, like players are just going to lose opportunities and it's, it's unfortunate. Um, but sadly that's, that's kind of the reality that, that we're working with now. Um, yeah. So on that bummer of a note, let's go on to our next question. Um, Jared Thompson on Instagram asked, what's your take on 2023 right-hander Joey Volchko? He seems to have a lot of helium right now. Uh, indeed he does. I would say he is probably one of the bigger overall helium prospects in the class at this point. We didn't have him on our top 200 list um, coming into the year. At this point, it feels like he is pretty solidly in day one consideration he's going to uh, we initially put him at about 119 i think is where we had him on our top 300 expansion in march because um, we, we very quickly heard that he was pitching really well it sounds like he needs to be even higher 
than that. Um, I think top two rounds is is kind of what we're thinking at this point for him. It's a Stanford commit, so maybe he doesn't actually go there because Stanford commits are notoriously difficult signs. And like we were just talking about, there there are fewer and fewer high school players selected. Um, so if you have a big signing bonus demand, you're there's a decent chance you're you're passed over for someone who actually will sign. So. I think that can be tricky for him just in terms of actually ending up with affiliated team this year, but the talent is certainly there. He was a guy that I saw last summer at the area code games and, and showed really impressive stuff. Low nineties, fastball that got a bunch of swings and misses showed good field to spin a breaking ball. I think the biggest thing for him this spring where he's taken a step forward is the command. He was very scattered throughout the summer. Um, it feels like, all the reporting that we've done to this point um, makes it seem like the scouts believe he's taken a big step forward in the control. He's a big physical kid, six foot four. He's also very young for the class. He's now 91, 96, showing two breaking balls, maybe an above average slider, curveball that's that's solid, um, a fourth pitch with a changeup that gives him uh, four real pitches, as we might say, Ben. Um, <laughs> I think there's still some work maybe to clean up the delivery a little bit, but he's got a lot of traits that teams are going to like um, moving forward. And yeah, he's, he's one of the biggest healing players in the class to this point. So that's kind of my thoughts on him. I didn't see him at his best, but even when I didn't see him at his best, his, his fastball was still jumping over a lot of bats at the area code game. So it was impressive. Yeah. I saw him as an underclassman at the area code underclass games and I had to go back and check my notes just hearing about him from uh from you from what scouts were saying this spring because going into his junior year he's about 85 to 88 so it sounds like he's taken a, a big jump forward yeah really has just, just kind of consistently trended up it seems like and I imagine there are some teams who think that the control can continue to get better too once some of the delivery stuff there gets gets ironed out um because I think he's also a um, he's a really good basketball player as well. So there's probably some thinking that like as he focuses more exclusively on on baseball, there's there's a lot that uh, you can still get out of him. Um, so hopefully that answers your question, Jared. Thank you for for sending it in. Our last question I think for today comes from Norberto on Instagram, who asks, "Where's the cutoff in this draft class between the elite, above average, and average pitchers?" Right. I think pitchers is cut off here in the question, but I believe he was asking about pitchers. Is that right, Ben? Well, I thought it was just players overall. Oh, players overall? Sorry. Yeah. Okay. That's a good one. So hmm, the phrasing here is throwing me off a little bit because I, I guess you could take this in a couple different ways. Above average and average how are we phrase how are we differentiating or how are we defining elite above average and average in the context of this draft class like compared to a normal draft class i guess if you if you were to cut player like cut tiering group, players yeah if you were to cut players into tiers yeah. what would be like the top tier of kind of player for you is it just like Cruz, langford skeens in like a land of <laughs> of their own or or is it yeah, deeper I think, than that for you. I think you could probably have a couple tier breaks at the top. I think for me right now, I think if you asked me two weeks ago, I would have said my top tier was Cruz, Skeens, Langford, Dullander. I think at this point, I would cut it down to three and say my my top tier is Cruz, Skeens, and Langford, just because Dullander hasn't seemed quite as sharp. 
Um, he just got bumped in the rotation this weekend with Tennessee. I think Tennessee's like shaking some things up to see what will work for them. But in the matchup with Dolander and Skeens, Skeens looked like a, a different tier of player in person. And, and just the step forward he's taken and, and Chase just not being quite as sharp as he was a year ago. I think my my top tier would be Dylan Cruz, Paul Skeens, Wyatt Langford. After that, I think I would have a second tier. And in that group, I would put Chase Dolander, Max Clark, Walker Jenkins in probably a second tier of their own. Um, I think you could maybe argue for some of these secondary college position players like a Jacob Wilson or like a Braden Taylor or maybe Jacob Gonzalez. But there are enough questions, I think, with their profiles that I would take Dolander, Clark, and Jenkins as maybe maybe their own like 1B or, or clear uh, tier 2, I should say. How, how does that sound to you? Yeah, yeah, I think those, I mean, some of those college hitters, especially like Wilson and Taylor to me are, are pretty mm-hmm. pretty exciting dudes. But, yeah, I could see them being, you know, sort of like a couple of the Walker and, uh, and Max group. Yeah, and then I think beyond that, if we want to go just a little bit further, I would – I'll maybe lump Jacob Wilson, Jacob Gonzalez, Braden Taylor, Hurston Waldrop, right-handed pitcher at Florida, Rhett Lauder, right-handed pitcher at Wake Forest, Noble Meyer, who we've talked about today. And I think I would I would kind of have that as my next tier of players. It, this is where it gets a little bit more blurred. I, I could see a case for the big college third baseman, Johanny Morales and Brock Wilkin. I, would, I wouldn't really want to have them in that same tier. Matt Shaw at Maryland has been really hot lately. Same is true for Enrique Bradfield and um, an SEC play with Vanderbilt. But all of those players, I think, have enough questions where I would have my first tier of the first three you mentioned, Cruz, Cruz Skeens, Langford. Second tier, I would have Dolander, Clark, Jenkins. And then third tier, I would have Wilson, Gonzalez, Taylor, Waldrop, Louder, Noble Meyer. And then after that, I think it, it probably gets a little bit too um, – it opens up a little bit, I would say. Yeah, we're also re – reworking our entire draft board based on a lot of feedback we're getting from scouts across the country right now so that's also uh yeah something that's going to get shaken up pretty soon yeah and true and i think i would just emphasize that right things move so quickly on the draft side and players shuffle around much quicker than you would think just given how we talk about small sample sizes in baseball it almost feels like unnatural to do it that quickly and and shovel players that frequently but it really does happen on the draft side throughout the draft season like all of these all the different performances the feedback we get like we're shuffling these guys pretty rapidly in, in the overall like just like compared to i don't know if it's compared to our other rankings we're, we're constantly tweaking all of our rankings i guess but i would just say don't write these in pen basically is the best way to say it like there's a chance that they're going to change. I I just said like two weeks ago, Dolander would have been this in this top tier, maybe two weeks from this conversation, it'll be like Cruz and Skeens are, they're clearly the one too. So things change pretty quickly here, but that's how I see it today. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's all we had today, Ben. Um, this is fun. Anything else that you want to chat about that, that we haven't gotten into maybe? No, I thought this episode was off the charts, Carlos. Oh, it truly was off the charts. Hopefully it's in the uh, positive direction. We'll uh, leave that up to the listeners to decide. 
anything that you want to plug that you're working on, anything readers should be on the lookout for with with your work with with Baseball America at large moving forward. It's I mean it's just the best time of year right now, obviously with the minor league season going. It's exciting hearing all this new information coming out on from uh, the minor league season drafts draft season. Going to have a whole whole bunch of international stuff uh, coming up from this this past signing class pretty soon. So yeah, we got a, a lot of different things coming up. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, next week um, might get a little iffy for us in terms of just scheduling the podcast with with travel that me and Ben have kind of overlapping. So we're going to try and keep the show um, as consistent as we can. But just a heads up that next week might be a little bit later than normal for the next podcast. Uh, hopefully that won't um, disrupt things too much. Um, but otherwise, yeah, thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, thank you for rating and reviewing the show if you've done that. If you haven't, maybe consider dropping a rating, giving us an off-the-charts rating if Apple allows you to do that. That would be greatly appreciated. It helps the podcast, puts it in all the algorithms. Maybe someone who who hasn't heard the show but would like the show will get a chance to check it out because of your feedback. So um, consider that. And, and thanks, as always, to all the Baseball America subscribers out there letting us do what we do every day here. Um, we really appreciate your support. And yeah, until next time, that's Ben Badler. I'm Carlos Colazzo. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time.